Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I said, well, what about that one and that one? And so all of these paintings were by this famous Danish writer. And she said, you know, she was supremely gifted in so many different things. And so few people really know how multi-talented and multifaceted she really is. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. Hello, June. How are you? Karen, I am swell. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Of course. And so whose voice did we just hear at the top of the show? So that was Connie Nielsen, the Danish actress who listeners may know from such movies as Gladiator, Wonder Woman or Brothers. So my excuse for talking to the Queen of the Amazons was that (laughs) she is starring in The Dreamer, which is a new six-part biopic of the Danish writer Karen Blixen, whose pen name was Isaac Dinesen, who is also the person that Meryl Streep played in Out of Africa. That's so cool. I cannot wait to hear about the process, especially because I actually haven't heard of Karen Blixen before. But before we get to that, what can we look forward to for Slate Plus this week? So in addition to playing the title character, Connie Nielsen was also the executive producer of The Dreamer. And since that title can and does seem to mean (laughs) different things on different shows, Mm -hmm. I asked her what it involved in this case. And it was really interesting. Then we talked about how the popularity of the Nordic noir genre has shaped the way outsiders think of Scandinavian culture. Oh, that's so fun, especially because you are right. Nordic Noir has kind of blown up (laughs) over the last decade or so. So I'm very excited to listen to that. Slate Plus members will hear that at the end of the episode. But if you're not a Slate Plus member, but want to hear the segment, why not join Slate Plus? As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member exclusive episodes and segments from our show and other shows like The Waves, Culture Gap Fest, and Amicus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash working plus to access all of Slate's content and to support our work. All right, let's hear June's conversation with Connie Nielsen. Connie Nielsen, thank you so much for joining us on Working. It is such a pleasure to be here. So we're excited to talk to you today about The Dreamer, which is a six-part series in which you star as the Danish writer Karen Blixen, who wrote as Isaac Dinesen. And the show is now available on a new Nordic streaming service called Viaplay. I'm really curious, how did you become involved in this project and what attracted you to The Dreamer? Well, I actually wrote the concept for the whole story. And it had been a while since I was obsessed with Karen Blixen. Around four years ago, I was doing press in Denmark for a new series that I had made in Africa. And because of the Africa connection and what I was making was an anti-colonialist piece And so I think, you know, because of all of these uh, synergies and symmetries, the press conference was held at the Karen Blixen Museum, where I just adroitly sort of like avoided the museum director the whole day. And I was like literally sneaking out a back door to get home when I see this painting out of the sort of left eyeball (laughs) on the side and just step back out of the door and like move towards the room where I see this 
kind of luminous drawing. And, you know, it's a simple graphite and white paper drawing. So to call it luminous is maybe weird. But there is a whiteness or a light that's emanating from this graphite uh, drawing of a classical bust. It's beautifully done. It still hums with energy. So I, I lean in and I look at it and behind me, it's literally like out of a movie, like I jump with, with fright. I hear a voice all of a sudden say, Karen painted that when she was 17. And she's like, you know, another thing that people don't know is that she didn't start writing until she was 46. And I was like, what? Yeah. She only started writing because she had to. She was 46 years old. She had lost a lot of her family's money in an investment in a coffee farm in Africa that had gone south despite her most valiant efforts. She was therefore not going to have any more money. And as a woman, she wasn't going to inherit anything at all. She's supposed to have married into money, but her husband has divorced her after giving her syphilis. Was so sick by the time she reaches Denmark in the autumn of 1934. She is skin and bones. She is suicidal. She has, in fact, had one suicide attempt at this point and is, is just wanting to die. Her boyfriend has not only not helped her, he's also left her. There's nothing left. She is nobody and will now be expected at the age of 46 to please just go and die very quietly in a corner, slowly, preferably. And that's what she comes home to. She comes home to, yes, what looks like a grand house, but the real money has gone. That is where our series start. Right. Because I was like, how many women reach their mid-40s and kind of realize how much of themselves they have given to their kids, to their partners, to their parents, to their friends? We know that women end up at that age and in retirement with 30% less money than their male peers, it is expensive to be a woman, expensive. <laughs> but that is the moment where Karen Blixen found her fire. She found her the fire of her intellect. And she starts to write, which is the story of the series. You mentioned that she's basically skin and bones when she returns to Denmark. She's miserable. She's, she's sick mentally and physically, and she's weak mentally and physically, yeah. very fragile. And I know you're an actress, but you are Wonder Woman's mother. <laughs> I, and I, I just like, so clearly there's a transformation that happened, a physical transformation as well as a projection. We're used to actors putting on weight for roles, but how did you make yourself into a, this physically fragile person? So that was quite literally so daunting because, you know, the only way to really get rid of muscle is to starve the muscle, you know? So oh I had to stop working out and I had put on like five kilos of muscle. That's 10 pounds, 11 pounds of muscle during Wonder Woman and Justice League. And that stuff doesn't just go away, thankfully, thank God. Uh, <laughs> but obviously, I couldn't look like a glamazon when I was playing a person who's known for being like small and skinny like a sparrow. And most mm -hmm. people remember Karen from the later age, like the pictures, the famous pictures by Cecil Beaton and, and also by Peter Beard, where she looks like a, this witch. She's very proud of the fact that, in fact, she looks like a, a witch at that time. But she's in her 70s, whereas I'm mm. playing her in her 40s. And so she had more roundness, but she was by no means an Amazon, that she was not. So mm -hmm. I had to get rid of that. At the same time, the writer now calls me and tells me, yeah, we're going to have you play the three characters that represent the various types of allowed femininity 
in her story, The Dreamers. And so that meant that I had to, you know, also prepare for being in a very scanty outfit on like doing a striptease on a stage and like these other really idealized people, which of course, as Mm -hmm. an actor, I went like, yes, but also (laughs) uh, as as a person went like, oh my God, how am I supposed to do this? And it was hard. I started doing like two day water fasts every week. And then during the rest of the week, I would do intermittent fasting. So I only had one day of eating normally. And that was Sunday. (laughs) The rest of the time for two months, I just basically had to just starve. And I did. And I was shooting, you know, her at her weakest. And so I had to really just, I think, torture my body in order to not look healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My hair started falling out. Thank God I was wearing a wig during that time. And then after two months, you know, I realized that in one month, I was going to start shooting all of those other scenes where I'm the idealized character. So then I started having to work out at 4.30 in the morning. That was the only time there was room for in my schedule. And start eating like so much protein and so much fat just to to start getting into shape for these other characters again. Wow. It was nuts during that time. Yeah. I got to say that sounds nuts. Yeah. Connie, you have a reputation as one of those actors who really enjoys doing research about your character and the period the story's based in. You've talked a little bit about how you kind of you became almost entranced, it sounded like, by Karen Blixen when you were at the museum. What did you do to help you find your version of Karen Blixen? What what kind of research did you do? You know, she's kind of, she's not kind of, she is a Danish icon. But I felt like whatever we do as women, we have to resuscitate many times the sort of reputation of female artists who have been sort of maltreated at the hands Mm -hmm. of posterity. There was no one left speaking up for her. And I felt like, that's not right. That's not right. What I also had been irritated with for a long time was that every film or every uh, TV series about a female artist, especially with painters, invariably becomes about their sex life. Mm-hmm. And it's like women cannot escape their bodies. Like we cannot escape our body. We are consistently referred to within the realm of the body, just like Socrates. And <laughs> since then, just thousands maybe of uh, writers and philosophers, all male, have relegated us to that sphere. And you still see that in film. It's never about what is the yeah. actual intellectual and creative process of a person. A person. And because she's female, what is the uniqueness about the female version of life and how that process moves Mm -hmm. through you? Because as a woman, we will have very specific and different wounds. We will have the wound of being just consequently and insistently denied value. And I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of it. And I wanted to show how Karen feels that way too, because she did and she does. Once she became famous, she was more sort of blasé about it, but in her letters and in her work prior to that, it was like pounding, pounding on doors and no one was opening them. Well, I have to say that that really does come through in in the series. But I also was aware that even as a feminist, there's a feeling that she's so determined and she will exploit any connection and she, she upsets people. And you understand she has to. This is her only chance. See, there's nothing else she can do unless she wants to sit in that corner for the rest of her life. However, it's hard to watch because she's hurting her family. She's hurting her family that 
you know, in turn are very willing to hurt and denigrate her. But we were very conscious of that, you know. Uh, We were very conscious of the brutal side of the artist. And Mm -hmm. we were not going to shy away from making a multifaceted view of a person. The thing is, if it were a guy doing the same thing, which they do and did, Throughout the ages, <laughs> yes. with nobody sitting here and speaking, well, the way they treated their family was, quite frankly, a little bit disturbing. <laughs> we wanted to show a complex mm-hmm. person, someone who is real. And she was. You know, I don't think that it's possible to live this life and not find yourself in moments where you are going to be selfish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm curious, having explored Karen, having represented this this breadth of her character, including the selfishness, including this single-minded determination. Did you like her less after you'd finished making The Dreamer or or more? Like, did it affect your sort of, your sense of her, your admiration for her, or just how you felt for her generally? I don't want to put words in your mouth about your attitude to her. No, not at all. I, I went in doing this series knowing everything about her that I could find. Mm. Mm. I also feel like I was like praying to her spirit all the time and asking for forgiveness all the time, you know, in case I got shit wrong. I'm also (laughs) a super sensitive kind of person in the way that she is not. And so sometimes I wish that I were more like her, (laughs) you know, I... I do find that uh, it's more difficult being a sensitive than it is to not be. But, you know, Mm -hmm. there is also a wonderful saying that the cynic is a thwarted romantic. And so I can only (laughs) believe that somewhere, you know, that refers to the fact that people who are insensitive are potentially people who were wounded. Right, right, right and have not had the ability to change that, you know? Yeah. In other words, I come at her with compassion. Yes, I, I yeah, felt yeah. An, a, a lot of compassion for her. And I think that is an actor's job. It's a director's job mm-hmm. to have compassion for all the characters, but it's my job as an actor to have compassion for my character, but to also at the same time, you know, when I'm showing the ugly in her, to do so with honesty. Yeah. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Connie Nielsen after this. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello, listeners. We want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, or to share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at workingatslate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to June's conversation with Connie Nielsen. Almost all of your very impressive acting credits uh, have been in English or in the early days of your career, especially French or Italian. I know you are a polyglot. My count might be slightly off, but I think that only three of your 60 IMDb credits are in Danish. So yeah. I'm curious, like, did you approach this role differently because it was in Danish? I know you had a very big hit of a Danish movie some years ago. 
brothers. Yeah. So how did it feel? Oh, you know, great. I think one of the things that actually made me laugh was that the Danish critics were like, yeah, you can hear a little bit of her accent. And I was like, dude, I was speaking like fucking Karen Blixen. <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I feel very happy about the fact that I'm an American now and I'm also Danish. I really think that that suits me. This is dual citizenship. I'm a very civic person um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I love being able to contribute to my community and being an American allows me to do so here. But I mm -hmm. also have this great love of my country of birth. And I think that I've been received with so much acceptance and respect and love by Danish viewers and Danish critics. I'm extremely, extremely grateful for that. Like, seriously, it's not easy to be the foreigner coming home, you know. Uh, and so yeah, yeah, yeah. I've definitely been very happy about that. But I did start my career in Paris and then, you know, continued it in Italy in my early 20s. And then from my mid 20s, resolutely turned towards America, which I felt mm -hmm. was the place where I was allowed to be taken seriously and not have my height and my features held against me uh, mm -hmm. in terms of being an artist. Whereas I felt that that was not the case in Italy and in France. And mm -hmm. so okay. I have been more than grateful for the opportunities that American films have afforded me. It's great to be polyglot because, yes, I've gone back and I've done films in Paris and in Italy that are wonderful pieces of work as well, like Demon Lover with mm -hmm. Olivier Assayas and other Italian movies as well that I've, I'm very proud of. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunity that language affords me. I also mm -hmm. just love the day-to-day -day thing of being able to speak to people in their own idioms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know to what extent The Dreamer was made with non-Danish or non-Scandinavian audiences in mind, but there were a couple of places where I had a very strong feeling that I was missing something because I don't speak Danish. Like, Karen's mother seemed to have a different kind of accent, and I was very fascinated by that. You were totally right, because <laughs> I was speaking this more archaic Danish, because she did, Karen did. I modulated it a lot, but it was so interesting that with the two elderly uh, actresses mm -hmm. uh, playing my mother and my aunt, they speak a specific type of Danish that they were taught to speak back in the 50s and 60s. So it's a very, it's a little bit like the Cary Grant kind of American. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. And then you have the younger Danes that speak like this very open-voweled kind uh, and like much more soft consonants than the older generation did. And then there was mine, which I spoke in a uh, in a Karen Blixen accent that was even older than because it's from the 30s. So you're not wrong at all. That huh, was there. Huh. But then also when you spoke in English, when Karen spoke in English, that wasn't your speaking voice in English. That was Karen Blixen's accent. And so... You know, Karen Blixen had like a whole narrative about the role of the storyteller in any community. And it's sort of like a European thing where when you go to acting school and you start with Greek theater, you learn about the origin of the theater, which was the storyteller, like the Ovidian storyteller who is walking from village to village and sitting around the campfire and speaking these lines, these beautiful, poetic, iambic pentameter lines, you know, these, this rhythmic Greek pentameter. And for, for Karen, that moment, that's magic. That is you grasping the fire of the gods and speaking to like the sphere of humanity. Mm -hmm in The Dreamer, she seems to be hallucinating her stories, which in a way is kind of what you do when you go to the movies and you kind of have a almost like a living dream that you're experiencing. Yeah. And, and I think that when you are a writer and you are in that trance, yes, there's a part of writing that's, it's just real hard work and it's technique and it's, it's you finding your structure of language. And that's so beautiful and so interesting. And then there is also Karen's unique contribution, which is this idea 
that you're making tales, that the tales have this heightened atmosphere. It's a little bit more in the style of Mary Shelley than it is in the style of, I don't know, uh, George Orwell, who was her contemporary. And so she heightens that by taking the scenes into a golden age 100 to 150 years earlier, a time when life was not so organized. There was no electricity yet. And so there was a lot more potential for accident, for, I don't know, a magical accident. And mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I think she has a lot more in common with Renaissance of writers than she has with her contemporaries. And she loved that. And she loved the promise of of the Enlightenment. You know, she just loved that idea, that ideas can be discussed and we can become smarter mm-hmm. with the discussion. I mean, it's interesting, though, that even though her family did not treat her well, they, you know, they, they put her off in that, that chair in the corner, but they seemed to be quite an intellectual family. You know, people were writers. I was very curious about that sort of slice of, of I guess, society, you know. Can you talk about the kind of family she came from and if there were things that even you needed to learn about that slice of Danish social history, the history of the Danish class system, because they seemed very upper class, very intellectual, but I don't know if that's my projection onto them. Well, I mean, that brings up a lot of interesting things. I come from a culture, Danish culture, of reading. Mm. Reading is, is part of being human. It's part of developing your humanity. Having knowledge is not for you to be some witty reference at a dinner party showing off your scintillating whatever. No, (laughs) it's about developing your soul. It's about developing your humanity. And, Mm. And that is something that has been through centuries of European societies. It is stunning to me that having raised five boys, that it's this hard to get people to read. I mean, I have quite literally stuffed their rooms with books (laughs) and, and, and told them about and read to them. And, and it just feels as if the last two generations are just not as taken with the promise Mm. of reading for the, for my older kids. It's really more about information, data. Mm. Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, it's about language and it's about a thickening of your of the intricacy of thought and of associative thinking and all of these different ways in which reading influences your mind mm-hmm. it's because it trains your brain mm-hmm. in different thought patterns and and that was the kind of family that Karen came from that is what she grew up with like if you were worth your own salt mm-hmm. you were thinking and if you were thinking, you were writing. And if you were writing, you were sending your your things into some journal. Karen's father wrote about hunting because he loved hunting. He wrote about his year in Minnesota with the, this Indian tribe. Everything was about expressing your lived reality, but also your thinking. Or, and this is where, you know, Karen's sister has not survived very well into uh, posterity because there is also the other side to it, which is mm. self-reverential mm-hmm. dilettantism. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and how do you know the difference, especially if your husband is the publisher? He's just in the business, Connie. He's not involved <laughs> in the, you know, let's be clear. <laughs> but there was a sanctimoniousness about it that I just thought was so beautiful. And I mean, obviously, is ripe for for uh, exploitation in a, you know, for comedy, right, in, in, our, in our piece. Yeah, that definitely comes through. I'm ashamed to say that I have never read any Isaac Dennison, but I have seen Out of Africa. And I suspect that a lot of English speakers are likely in that same boat. What was it like to know that people would be comparing your version of Karen Blixen with Meryl Streep's? We, we were like, well, that's obviously iconic. Uh, all of us probably saw it back in the 80s when it came out. 
we're not going to rewatch it and we're not going to have that in our minds. We're just basically going to ignore it. Also because it basically speaks to the Karen Blixen sort of romantic idealization, whereas we were coming at it with, well, here's the dirty truth. Yeah. You know, the thing that really struck me in uh, The Dreamer, she was off doing something. She was talking with a, with one of her nieces, and then they call her in to do the singing. And I think, I just want to call everybody in to do singing. Because, like, what was that about? Is that is that a, a thing that is common, or is that just something that the Blixens did? Oh, this was common in America as well. You know, when I moved into this house, the owner who was the niece of the first woman who owned this house. This has only been owned by women. And it was built by a woman back in, in 1936. And when the niece, Robin, was a, a kid, she would come here on vacation. And she left me her aunt's piano. Oh, yes. Right there. Aww. And she said, you know, I have only the most incredible memories of my life in this house. When I was little, I was lying in the bedroom and I was listening to the adults, and it was my aunt playing the piano and all of the adults singing together. So this was oh. back in the 40s, right? And this was normal. This was entertainment before the TV. So before TV, people sang together. They sang. They read together. That was normal. Well, it's lovely. And, um, and, and, and so on Sundays, of course, you know, you would also mix piety with singing as well. Mm -hmm. So even at Centroper, one of the biggest uh, production companies in Denmark, I think until recently, they would start every morning with a morning song. We would start school when I was growing up with a morning song. Huh. And we had like this like large, gi giant book, like this big of like psalms and songs that you would sing from that were like speaking about the glory of Denmark and <laughs> the beautiful rolling hills and the clouds. And Karen Blixen. Yeah. Connie Nielsen, I'm so grateful to you for the time you spent with us today on Working. It's so nice to talk to you. It's a beautiful show. The Dreamer, streaming on Viaplay. Thank you so much for visiting with us on Working. Oh my gosh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Up next, June and I will talk about pushing yourself for your art. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So I loved Connie's description of her encounter with that graphite piece by Karen Blixen, yes. because I do often feel like you can look and look and look for something to inspire you. But the thing about art is that ultimately you can't really force creativity to come to you, as we know yep. from numerous discussions about <laughs> it on this show. You just never know when something's going to hit you like that, even if you feel like you've already cultivated a passion for a certain subject. And I'm curious yeah. if you've ever had, a, I guess, like light bulb moment like that. Oh, man, definitely. And it's often really inconvenient. <laughs> when I was finishing up the first draft of my book, and I'll be honest, I was a little tight on time. And I knew that I should be very strategic, you know, figure out how many days I had before mm -hmm. my submission deadline and how many words I wanted to write and approach it in a very calculated manner. And for the most part, I did. I was quite focused. But there were a couple of times where I just got interested, like fascinated mm -hmm. in what I knew to be a bit of a side quest. You know, <laughs> rationally, I knew that it's important, just couldn't justify my taking more than, you know, so a couple of hours to chase down the information and write it up. Right. But I, I also couldn't stop myself you know, from <laughs> digging. I'm not going to go into too much detail because 
It's maybe something I'll return to at a later date, but while I was writing a book about lesbian spaces, I became fascinated with certain Rococo elements of the private venture capital world and how those kinds of investments can affect independent businesses. So I definitely recognised the experience that Connie Nielsen described, where you're not looking to get involved. In fact, you're actively trying to turn your back on something. But somehow, you know, it just pulls you I in. I did laugh so much when she was like, yeah, I was trying to avoid the music curator no. the whole night. But I speaking don't. of these kinds of, I guess, extremes and extreme experiences, there's also not just the mental extreme of this inspiration in Connie's journey with Karen Blixen, but also this journey of physical extremes as she's shooting the series, as she described, like, starving herself, but then having to bulk up a little bit again for other parts of the show. She's obviously okay on the other side of the shooting experience because she can come talk to us about it. Right. But putting yourself through that kind of grueling experience, like the phrase, you have to suffer for your art exists for a reason, though I don't Mm -hmm. know that it's always true. In this case, obviously, she did want to look the part practically as opposed to, I guess, employing CGI to make herself look so small. But I think Mm. the key here is that it has to be your conscious choice to do this and also be done in a way that you know it won't kill you right and right, and also right. to know that it's not like required that you do this what do you yeah. think of that philosophy i agree with you fully i think that's very well put i'm not going to claim to know connie nielsen course, we spent yeah. an hour together talking on zoom but i got a very strong impression that she's the kind of woman who knows her limits and is confident enough in her position in the industry and in life to stick to them so mm-hmm. that feels important Isaac and I discussed a similar topic in last week's episode Mm -hmm. of Working when he talked with opera singer Ryan Speedo-Green, who lost more than 60 pounds for a role at the Met. He started off at more than 300 pounds, though. And it's in that context, it's easier to see that kind of weight loss as healthy, whereas it's hard to picture basically one day of normal eating per week as anything but the opposite. One thing that strikes me, though, is that in a Danish language series where the Danes who were watching would have a clear image in their heads of the real Karen Blixen, who really was this waif-like creature, and then non-Danish speakers may be paying extra attention to appearances since they can't understand the words Mm -hmm. that people are speaking. Like All of that might have provided extra incentive to go through that very intensive process that she described. I guess the bottom line is like, know your limits. And also specifically with regards to physical transformations like this, like no matter what you're doing, whether it's gaining weight, maintaining weight or losing weight, make sure that you are being healthy. Like that is really the only important thing is like be healthy, make sure that you are okay. It does not really matter outside of that. And with that in mind, how much do you push yourself when you're working? Does that change like how much you want to push yourself when you're working on something you're really passionate about versus something that's maybe a little more run of the mill to you? Like how far are yeah. you willing to go? I, I know obviously that our personal lines of work are much <laughs> less demanding than that. And maybe this question yeah. is just about how late either of us are willing to stay up or how long we're willing to go <laughs> exactly. without taking a break. But what to you is acceptable in your work and what is off limits or otherwise not worth it in terms of these boundaries? Yeah, well, I first appreciate you're saying like what the specifics are (laughs) in our particular line of work, you know, with my soft, soft hands, I'm very aware (laughs) that, you know, I'm a writer rather than a miner or a mill worker. Mm -hmm. But this is probably the most important thing I've learned as I've spent more time as a journalist and a writer. It is really important to use your time intentionally and intelligently. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just mean that you can't screw around all day, start late and finish early and watch (laughs) 10 hours of TV. I mean, you can't. But other than in very exceptional circumstances, like the very final deadline of a big project or something truly extraordinary, the best way to do good work is just to be careful about boring things like getting enough sleep and scheduling your day wisely so you have focus time and replenishment time and, you know, things we talk about on this show. It's better to work eight hours where you minimize distractions and use all the strategies at your disposal to be able to do deep work than it is to sit up all night or force yourself to stay at your desk for 20 hours straight trying to finish something. 
I definitely did that mm -hmm. early in my career because I didn't know how else to get everything done. Mm. And now I realize that the secret is knowing the limits of what you can get done and not even trying to exceed them. Yeah, that's really, really smart. Like knowing your limits is such an important thing and also sometimes a hard thing to come yeah. around to because you really yeah. only know through experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And while we're talking about experience, I think there's also a different kind of extreme from the ones that we've just talked about uh, and that you discussed with Connie in terms of how to balance your life and art. Because yeah. there's two kind of juggling acts that Connie describes that she had to accomplish. Number one, juggling her life and what she had to do for this series as she describes like she had to wake up at four in the morning <laughs> to work out because that was the only time that she had in her schedule. And then juggling what she wants out of life versus the kinds of stereotypes and pressures that are put upon women that can often limit us. Yeah. I won't be so presumptuous as to <laughs> say, I know you've also experienced the difficulty of balancing these things in your life. So instead, I will ask, have you encountered this kind of difficulty and how have you dealt with it? You know, Karen, I have to say I am very conscious of having made certain choices that mm. have made it a lot easier for me to find that balance. And it is for most women. I don't have children and I never wanted them. Like that wasn't mm -hmm. a sacrifice that I made. I opted out of certain appearance related things that I know can take up a lot of time each and every day and mm -hmm. are not optional for many women. And I also have an incredibly supportive partner who really does more than her fair share when I am in a particularly intense period of work. So all of that said, I'm not sure that that is a choice that a lot of women can make, mm -hmm. not only because of all the things they have to do, but because it requires certain innate attitudes. You know, I didn't want things. And so that, gosh, that makes it so much easier not to have mm -hmm. them. But you know what? I am really grateful to Connie Nielsen for spelling that out. You know, at this point, she's rich. She's in the DC Cinematic Universe movies. She has a lovely house and five children. But the only way she makes that work is to be incredibly single-minded, just as Karen Blixen was 90 <laughs> years ago. I actually didn't know she had five kids, which makes uh, what I'm about to ask, I think, a little funnier to me personally, because <laughs> she talked about like struggling to get her kids to read. Because on that subject, while we're talking about these kind of essential qualities of art, I really loved what she said about reading yeah. and otherwise appreciating art being a key part of developing your humanity. I think that ties into what we've talked about, about how anything can technically be creative work from going to see movies to as per your conversation, reading books. When we talk about writing too, we also say that the best way to learn how to write well is to read. Yeah. How much of a reader are you and what books have had the biggest effect on you? When I was a kid, I would say that a lot of my identity was invested in being a reader. You know, that was mm -hmm. what set me apart and, mm. you know, it allowed me to have a very different life from everybody else in my family. I was the first person to go to college and I didn't always read what I was supposed to. You know, like <laughs> I, I could never quite keep up with the reading when I was at university, but it was because there was always something else that I was more interested in reading, yeah. you know, usually American magazines or lesbian novels. And... Mm -hmm. Long term, that seems like it was a good choice, but it would probably have been better if I could just have read what I was supposed to, <laughs> but that wasn't to be. But anyway, I've always been a big reader. But you know what? A few years ago, I had a bit of a crisis, and I think it was related somewhat to something Connie said about her kids, where she said that for them, it's about information, data, you know, Obviously, as nonfiction writers, we have to do a lot of that kind of reading where we have to become an expert on a topic in a short period of time. And I was doing so much of that that I think I kind of forgot how to read for fun. And although I think I fixed that dysfunction by turning to audiobooks for when it comes to reading for pleasure. Right. I do still feel a bit broken because I still find it really hard to just sit down and get lost in a book, like a book book. You know, it could just be that I haven't yet found my ideal reading location in this apartment. I'm very mm -hmm. conscious of that. Yeah. <laughs> but what about you? You must yeah. be a big reader. Actually, no, not really, really? I, I, which is something that I want to change because I I was a very, very diligent reader when mm. I was younger, I would say pretty much through high school. But then like when you get to college and stuff, all the reading that I was doing was definitely required reading, like everything uh -huh. that I read was assigned to me. And I think because 
of doing that for such a long time, once I got out of college, I, I just didn't really read for pleasure very much. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. More clearly, I didn't read books for pleasure. Like I was still an avid reader, but it would be of like refuse of cultural uh, criticism yep. and things like yep. that. Like that's what I was seeking out. And it's tougher to devote that kind of time, I think, the more you grow older to a book. Uh, well, I mean, this is just me personally. I know a lot of people who are still very uh, voracious readers, so it is just a me problem. Yeah. But just because like, there are so many other things I want to do. I want to watch this TV show. I want to watch yep. this movie. I want to go to this place. I want to see that museum. But it's something I definitely want to get better at, uh, especially as I think about like the books that I really enjoyed when I was younger. And I'm like, oh, I want to reread that. Or I hear yeah. about a really cool book, and I'm like, oh, I want to check that out. But still right now the bulk of my reading diet is uh, articles, like news magazines, newspapers, etc. Yeah. As I say, I consider myself a reader. Mm-hmm. You know, when we moved, almost all of the things we shipped across the world were books. Yeah. You know, thousands of them. But I don't know that in my own home, not when I'm on vacation, but in my own home, I'm not sure how many times I've like sat down in the prime hours of the evening and read a book. Right. Yeah. You know, less than... 10 for sure. It's just not Mm -hmm. something I do. For that kind of downtime, of course I'm going to watch TV. I'm maybe going to watch a movie. To me, like those are the real readers. Like at (laughs) night when when they could be watching TV, they're reading. Yeah. You know, that's crazy to me. Okay. Back to your other question, which though was about the books that have had the biggest effect on me. It's interesting because they're not always the books that I think are the best books, Mm -hmm. you know. I suspect that the ones that have changed me the most are the books that have an emotional impact, either because Mm. they contain something Mm. that I can relate to and that I've rarely seen reflected in books. You know, I'm thinking maybe of Trash by Dorothy Allison or maybe Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson. Or books that are kind of inspirational in terms of showing how good a journalistic book can be. Say Nothing or Empire of Pain by Patrick Rudden Keefe come to mind in that regard. Or Sarah Shulman's Let the Record Show about the history of Act Up New York. Uh, Big book, but oh man, so good. And, And like, just, you just want to kind of, you want to do a book like that, you know? What books would you put in that category? I think there are like four or five that I would name, like, but mm. they're they're all about either how they accomplished telling the story that they were going to tell or like something specific about that person's writing. Like huh. one of the books I'd bring up is uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clarke, which is such a heavy and dense book. And it's so mm. it's written in such an academic way, but not in a way that feels dry or boring, which is like a huge mm-hmm. accomplishment. Because right. like one of the big things that I struggled to get over in my early writing, especially was getting over sounding too academic and dry and boring. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, reading yeah. that book in particular, where it's like reams of footnotes, and it's still like so fun to go into them. I was like, this is remarkable. And then the Westing game was a big one that I read when I was younger, uh, which is a very like quick read, but so, so fun. It's, I guess, more often than not described as a children's novel or, or like young adult novel because it's pretty small, um, again, and like centers on a, a young girl as the main character. But this mystery uh-huh. is carried off in such a fun, inventive way that I've read it again as an adult and still really loved it. Just like blew through it because I was like, oh, this is so uh-huh. great. Uh-huh. Um, and then like the Redwall series was huge to me when I was a teenager by Brian Shock, which is about like mostly a bunch of anthropomorphic animals going about their lives in like a sort of semi-medieval setting. Um, and the descriptions of food <laughs> in that are like huge to me. One of my favorite Twitter accounts it's just a Redwall Feasts bot, I think is what it's called. And it just tweets out the descriptions of food in the books. And every time I read them, I'm like, ugh, I wish I was that little mouse eating this meal. <laughs> um, wow. Wow. And I, I know I said four or five. So really quickly, the other ones I, w- I would guess I would say I was number one is The Hobbit, because my mom would read that to me when I was little. And so that Aww. was kind of just a very indelible story to me. And House of Leaves, which is best known because it's so experimental. Like the way that it's written is not straightforward at all. There are pages that fold out. Like it's very, very strange, but so scary to read. And I really, really loved it. And all of these books have something that I wish I could accomplish in my own art where it's unpredictable or just really engrossing in some way. Wow. Well, you know, I have to say, just listening to you talk about Mm -hmm. them, 
I can hear you being excited just like <laughs> thinking about those books. So that's amazing. Like that really does just show like how books can grab us and yeah. you know, just change our mood and change our perspective and all of those great things. Yeah, it is like it's, it's cool. such a singular art form. And OK, I think what we were saying was like, oh, I could also be watching TV or movies. Like, I think it's just the fact that there is so much rich art out there that we can get into. Yeah. It's not that I'm neglecting books or neglecting TV. <laughs> yeah. It's just that like, there's always something to look at that you have to be really conscious of devoting more time to one particular form if you really yeah. want to be doing more of that. Yeah, no, totally. What we were saying before, there are only so many hours. Exactly. You have to make decisions about how to spend them and you got to sleep. That's the most important thing of all. You got to get good sleep. Exactly. So if it is nighttime and you're listening to this episode of the podcast, <laughs> turn it off and go to sleep. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like the Waves and Cluttered Gap Fest, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Tack to Connie Nielsen and thanks to our producer this week, Kevin Bendis, and to our series producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Karen's conversation with Hannah Yim and Justine Wan, the subtitle translators for SBS Animal Farm. Until then, get back to work. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.